Inflammation it plays a central role in the development and persistence of many chronic diseases, but only relatively recently has the gut been linked as something more than just a passive player or affected reservoir for inflammatory processes. But what role does the gut, the gut immune system, and our own microflora play in chronic disease? We'll be investigating this and other questions today. You're tuning in to ReachMD on the floors of the A4M conference in Las Vegas, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. My guest today is James Laval. Laval. Laval, let me get it right. My guest is uh, James Laval. He's clinical pharmacist and nutritionist and CEO of Metabolic Code Enterprises. James has authored over 18 books on numerous subjects within the field of integrative medicine, and he serves as a course instructor for the George Washington University Integrative Medicine course. But perhaps most impressively, he also happens to consult with my beloved Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, Welcome to the program. It's great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I would devote an entire interview to the Blackhawks consulting, (laughs) but we have to get into some of the more meaty matters. Uh, So first, you gave a lecture called Inflammation Silent Fire, which uh, focused on the gut immune system um, and a lot of elements around there. How did you arrive at that title? Silent fire. Well, you know, silent fire is that a lot of times when we think of inflammation, we think, oh, my joints have to hurt, or my muscles hurt, or my head hurts, um, or my, gee, my ankle's really blown up and big, um, it's puffy. And really, the inflammation that I'm talking about, and I think a lot of people now recognize, is that there are low grade inflammatory processes going on in your body that disrupt everything from endothelial function, so the inner lining of the artery to the blood brain barrier to kidney function and how we filter. Uh, and, and as we see people progress through their metabolic dysfunction and this inflammatory cascade, this silent fire emerges as one that's fully raging. So no longer after several years of silent fire, now you can say, oh my gosh, it's a forest fire. I can see the heat now, right? I've got an autoimmune disorder. I've got placking. I've got renal disease, uh, you know, I, I've got cancer, which is a consequence of chronic inflammatory signaling. And so it's a process that's going on over time, initially silent. The longer it goes, the more it rears its ugly nature. Right. And you put the gut as a potentially central player in all of this. But I think a lot of our, our viewers, our listeners, wouldn't go there at first. They hear inflammatory and they think the gut, they just think inflammatory bowel disease and it stops right there. How pivotal is the gut? Um, And maybe you can take us a little bit through what's called the gut-brain axis, because a lot of people don't even understand that. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, the gut is the connection from the inner world and the outer world, right? What we swallow, what we breathe, what we eat, what we consume has to be processed through the gut. And then there's different modifiers to that. So the drug therapy I might be on, if I'm a on a proton pump inhibitor, or if I'm an H2 blocker, or if I'm chronically on corticosteroids, I alter that microbiome by influencing things potentially like uh, gastric pH, for example. So you you change the pH, acidity uh, of the gut, and you change the way the beneficial flora grow, and therefore a different series of flora grow, and those different flora now create different signals for your immune system to play out. Most of us have kind of figured out finally, whether you read in Annals of Immunology or um, allergy journals, everyone's talking about the role of the microbiome and the, what the pervasive issues are when you start off with basically a dirty microbiome or a microbiome that's been skewed, and now we recognize that it leads to eczema, allergies, asthma, autoimmune disorders, including things like type 1 diabetes, 
if you haven't over the recent few years looked at journals like uh, Clinics and Endocrinology and Metabolism, which is probably one of the preeminent uh, journal uh, revisions out there, you know, we're all talking about the fact that the gut and when the, when the inflammatory signals or circuits get turned on in the gut, it leads to systemic effects like beta cell destruction from the islets of Langerhans, so where you can end up with type 1 diabetes. And so it's not so easy when you first think about it, because you think, hey, if I'm pooping regular, that means that I must have a healthy gut. It's a little more complex than that. Right. And what, what is the chicken and the egg here when we talk about inflammatory signals? Are they coming from the disease that has already arisen, and that creates um, sort of a a terribly synergistic situation in which the gut then and the microbiome contributes back to it and creates more inflammation, or is it starting with the microbiome in many cases? Well, you know, that's that, the, the, I think that's the chicken-the-egg question that will never be answered because mm -hmm. the, the issue that we have is that, you know, some people could start out with a perfectly healthy gut, but then they're put on several rounds of antibiotics. They get exposed to some bugs and they get put on antibiotics and maybe they knock out their beneficial flora and some unfriendly flora grow back. Maybe you had perfect microbiome and you started eating foods and weren't digesting well. So maybe some foods that would cause more abdominal distension or bloating or changes in your microbiome, like eating a high sugar diet or a Guilty. high saturated fat diet Guilty with low again. fiber. Yeah. <laughs> right? Guilty at three times. Yeah, over. exactly. You know, no fiber, lots of sugar. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and when you do that, you start to change enzymes that regulate how your gut flora actually detoxify things from your body. So... The, sometimes the microbiome uh, alteration is the initiator of chronic inflammatory signaling, and sometimes chronic inflammatory signaling due to, say, sustained stress, for example. You had asked earlier about, you know, take me through the gut-brain axis. Well, when, when you get under stress, and stress could be psychogenic, it could be physical. I mean, I work with a lot of athletes. Um, used to work with the Blackhawks, not anymore, so I won't be as interesting of an interview next time for you. <laughs> uh, I worked tears. with Julie Burns, who was the uh, dietitian for the Blackhawks. Um, but the, the, the point being is, is that you could skew your gut by being incredibly healthy, you think. And a good example of this would be you're a runner, and you hear of people getting runner's diarrhea, mm -hmm. the gut-brain connection. When you, when you run a lot, you create more cortisol. If you're under a lot of stress due to your workplace or the, due to the fact you deprive yourself from sleep, or due to the fact that maybe you're using too many stimulants, which a lot of people are over-caffeinating. You know, it's caffeination. Um, anything that would drive that stress response to the brain, the hypothalamus, the direct response is make more cortisol. The indirect response, which gets to the brain and then gets to the gut, is that the spinal cord signals for you to make more sympathetic nervous system tone. Make more epinephrine, norepinephrine, basically. More adrenaline, more noradrenaline. And that is communicated through the enterochromaffin cells in the enteric nervous system, the nervous system that connects the gut to the brain. So the gut-brain connection is real. It's not etheric. There is a nervous system that connects the two. And when you become chronically inflamed, you create a process known as neuroinflammation where whether you're signaling from the gut and it's going to the brain or you're under sustained stress, and now your brain is sending out signals of elevated sympathetic overdrive, which then triggers the mast cells in your intestine to now start to leak histamine. When everybody's looking at mastocytosis and chronic histaminic problems now, whether it's cardiopulmonary issues 
or whether it's issues around the gut, that we have this excessive histaminic drive and that mast cells can leak histamine and create a chronic histamine exposure. And what does that boil down to for the gut? It boils down to the fact that the tight junctions of the gut lining, the epithelial cells, begin to erode. Because under the, an excessive histamine, an excessive cortisol environment, the gut permeability changes, and then antigens that would normally stay protected within the boundaries of the gut now have an opportunity to present themselves through absorption, through the gut, into the bloodstream eventually, and then get an immune reaction. So now we're seeing, for example, Fasano's work at Harvard, gluten sensitivity, um, full-blown celiac sprue versus gluten sensitivity, and its effect on autoimmune disorders. And, and so it's really just this process that goes on that can be started from the brain, or it could be started from the gut, and quite frankly, it could be started from even blood sugar causes spikes in cortisol and alterations in epinephrine and norepinephrine. So you could be someone that just simply eats yourself into the situation of having a leaky gut. Interesting. And what's interesting here is that in both depictions, you know, as we talked about the chicken and egg scenario here, that's right. They both make a lot of intuitive sense mechanistically as far as impacts that would relate to inflammatory disease within the bowel, but. You are saying, and others um, that you've been uh, working with, collaborating with, and other researchers are saying that the inflammatory diseases, um, which in some way might hearken to the um, mast cell histamine release, the uh, uh, recruitment inflammatory markers, um, you know, your own immune system becoming an autoimmune process within the gut, it's not simply re uh, resigned to the gut. The gut isn't simply a reservoir from which all the damage happens. You're saying it actually has ramifications on other diseases, heart disease, um, fibromyalgia, some other diseases? Cancer in particular. Look at irritable bowel disease and the incidence of cancer, right? Increased risk of colon cancers with irritable bowel disease. Um, the other thing you might think about, uh, it, it's the fact that it's kind of like this. If, if you had a car wreck and you saw the fender and you went, wow, that fender needs fixed, Colitis, right? We're talking about maybe an ulcerative colitis. Wow, that part of the colon is ulcerated. Well, what if it was failed brakes that caused you to have that fender bender? Did you fix the car when you fixed the fender? <laughs> That's the equivalent. And think about it. How many people with IBS also end up with anxiety disorders? One through uh, serotonin pathways, but they also have cognitive issues as it progresses because they have a neuroinflammatory process going on. So, yes, there is a local effect. And then there's a systemic effect. Interesting. So you had also talked about uh, microbes as playing a role as, um, uh, obviously they're not passive, but they're, they're communication modulators or regulatory roles. Can you get us a little bit deeper into what that means? Yeah, I spent a lot of time with uh, actually looking at probiotics and what's happening. And, you know, as it turns out, you know, we've got a lot of different probiotics that uh, actually communicate in the microflora to do different things. So one family of microflora might control circulating endotoxin more and result in B cell activation. Another family of uh, lactobacillus, for example, may uh, regulate how much L-positive lactic acid that your intestine is making to keep the pH of the colon corrected. Another family, so the bacterioides family, when you're eating enough fiber, getting resistant starch, will communicate through making enough uh, GLP-1. So it's responsible for signaling 
glucagon-like peptide is an intestinal hormone. And the microflora are literally playing the symphony of brain hormone regulation that does things like regulate leptin and ghrelin for appetite, uh, improve the modeling of glucagon and glucose regulation and then play important roles in gamma-delta cell expression for, say, fighting off colds and flu, uh, working with detoxification of hormones that you are, you know, your body makes hormones, you gotta get rid of them after you make them, and, and if you don't have enough of the beneficial flora that, is, that are making glucuronides, right? You get beta-glucuronide, glucuronides get attached to a hormone. If you don't have the right flora, you have unfriendly flora, you make more beta-glucuronidase, which cleaves the, the phase two conjugate off of that hormone and allows it to recircle again and then recirculate it, it, it gets absorbed and then stored and then you start to get into all kinds of these uh, hormonal pattern abnormalities. And I just don't think we have enough, we're still understanding the microbiome, you know? I mean, you know, it'd be great if we could just say, oh, you know what, we understand what all 500 of these do in concert. Turns out it's probably different with regionality, nationality and cultural foods as to what your flora is doing so that you're resilient to the local stressors and threats to you, which I think is pretty cool. I would taste to agree with you. If you're just joining us, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. We're at the A4M meeting in Las Vegas, and I'm joined by James Laval. We're talking about the microbiome's influence on chronic disease and uh, disease development and management. So you raised a really interesting point there. Um, I wanted to get into some therapeutic approaches, ways of or sure. perceiving how we can move forward in terms of helping people with this. But of course, why is it that we don't see, or do we, maybe I'm mis misconceived on this, why don't we see, um, based on nutritional choices from different parts of the world, uh, cultural practices therein, why don't we see very, very different spectra of, of inflammatory disease? Or maybe you can correct me right now, do we? Oh, yeah, I think we do see differences. I think, um, for example, real high... Uh, incidences of type 2 diabetes uh, in India and China. Lots of carbohydrates that are eaten there. And when you eat a very high, rich carbohydrate diet, you're going to influence your microflora again. And so I think that there are changes. Uh, there are some patterns. We don't have the same incidences of diabetes and cancer and heart disease everywhere across the world. And I'm not here to tell you that it's because of the microflora. But I would say that if the gut flora is not healthy, then you're certainly predisposing someone to a chronic inflammatory process that ends up expressing itself probably because of their genetic, genomic, and environmental predisposition that they present when the inflammatory match, so to speak, is struck and that silent inflammation and, you know, rears its ugly head, right? So the table is set through genetics, diet, exercise frequency, environmental exposure, drug history, all these things, you know, emotional stress, then the influencing inflammation kind of weaves its way through that discord of the genomics, you know, proteomics and metabolome to, to create expression of disease. Hmm. You know, the amalgamation occurs when we amalgamate our diet, right? As we've seen, you Western culture diet, diabetes goes up. Right, right. Uh, and it seems... Many people would have associated the rise in diabetes, cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome across other parts of the world as being related to the westernization um, and um, induction of a lot of diets from the U.S. over to other parts of the world. 
Um, you mentioned uh, China and India. Um, it's no surprise that they've had a massive um, upswing in utilization of things like McDonald's and other chains. Um, right. So perhaps that plays a role here. Oh, it, without a doubt. I mean, you know, look, fast food problems are fast food problems, and you know, globalization of fast food is is an issue. And 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 it's you know, when you really look at it, if you boil down kind of from the macronutrient perspective, if you look at all the data sets in the United States, it's real simple. We eat way too much starch and way too much sugar. And I don't care whether it's healthy starch. Oh, I'm going to eat gluten free. I'm you know, I'm going to eat you know, okay, you're eating gluten free. You still shouldn't eat a box of gluten free cookies, even though they're gluten free. You know, I so or I'm going to start juicing. So now you drink 16 ounces of fruit juice. So you're getting all that fructose loading, which without a doubt contributes more to any other and any other thing that I know right now of influencing insulin receptor sensitivity and subsequent insulin resistance. Just keep drinking tons and tons of fruit juice. <laughs> and uh, and and you know, and the and the next piece to that would be, of course, is that look, traditional cultures like India. I really believe it's just, look, they eat a lot of rice and they eat a lot of starch. And so they have a high incidence, you know, of, uh, you know, of diabetes. And, and, and once again, it, it's, we have to move back from thinking that there's a single cause and begin to understand that your metabolism, where we sit today, our metabolism is the sum total of everything that's happened from the time we were in our mother's womb, the epigenetics, and all the subsequent expressions of who we are today. And that creates and dictates how inflamed I am today and whether I'm developing a disease or how good I feel. And more importantly, our metabolic output today, meaning all the markers that we measure in blood, urine, saliva, quality of life surveys, biometrics, you know, okay, we got all that stuff down. And, uh, and the sum total of that is really dictating where you're going to end up. The elegance comes. It's easy to pick up somebody with irritable bowel disease. It's a lot harder to find somebody who's pre-irritable bowel disease and help them to make lifestyle choices that will then change their life and maybe thwart that expression. Right. So if we, in just the last couple of minutes, if we spend um, a little bit of more invested thought on that therapeutic approach, sure. uh, getting ahead of that for patients. Absolutely. Does it come down primarily to nutritional guidance or are there other... Um, uh, more aggressive means we hear of uh, stool transplants. We hear of a number of other things that can right. help try to modify our microbiome if, if this will have a, a noted effect for people's health, whether it be inflammatory disease or otherwise. What can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, I mean there's everything from the more heroic things like stool transplants, which, you know, obviously, you know, have been very successful. There's been some very interesting trials that have been developed. But, you know, I've been doing this work 32 years. So I started doing uh, nutrition education for people, teaching them how to eat, uh, in 1986, and, and so I find that a lot of people, the first thing they have to do is learn how to love vegetables. You know, hug your broccoli and cauliflower, and I'm not kidding. People do not eat enough plant food. The recommended amount is 12 cups a day of fruits and vegetables. Not, and, and what I tell people is three times vegetables over fruit, and you think that's really simple. It's not that simple because the more insulin resistant people get, the less efficient their cells are at making energy, and they need the starch and the sugar. So you have to repair their energy production. But the first step is fiber, vegetables. If you're not digesting them well, eat them cooked. That'll help you to digest them. The next step is, is I'm probably going to need to replace the microbiome because if I've eaten poorly, been on a lot of antibiotics, I'm under stress and not sleeping well. Uh, I've created a lot of cortisol. I've released a lot of histamine. I've got a bad pH, most likely, in my localized gut. And I should probably try to seed the gut with some beneficial flora. And, and you know, pick the flora. You know, look for probiotics that have human trials on them. 
I don't really see too many rats coming in my practice. If I did, there'd be a million things to give people, both on the drug side and on the plant side. So look for those floras that have great evidence uh, and compelling evidence that they benefit and restore immunologic drive. And the third thing, of course, would be, which a lot of people forget about, you really have to dig into the stress response. Um, it's easy for me to tell you, oh yeah, use Nystatin if you're suspecting candidics. Let's, let's start asking people to stick their tongue out again if they have thrush instead of looking at a piece of a, a lab sheet. Let's do a physical exam. Now they have fungus growing on them. If they got fungus growing on them, they probably got fungus growing in them, right? That's what we, you know, it's, it's not a big surprise. Um, but it's the nuances that I think are important. You could do corrective action for the gut for the rest of your life. And if you did not correct for the excessive hypothalamic stress response, which is driving cortisol and driving histamine release. In other words, getting people to calm down, slow down, deep breathe, make it a part of their life. You're going to always be chasing your tail trying to correct the microbiome because you're just literally having problems with getting counter-correction. And so it's important that people understand that that lifestyle piece of integrative medicine, it plays a physiologic role in someone's health. It's just not that, oh, exercise is good for you or, oh, eating right is good for you. It's that they're playing a physiologic role in modulating the neurochemicals of inflammation and normalizing the microbiome for the individual that's been skewed. I couldn't have generated better closing comments myself. I wish I could uh, ask you about 10 more questions, but I think we have, unfortunately, run out of time. I do want to thank my guest, James Laval. He is clinical pharmacist, nutritionist, author of many, many books, and probably the biggest reason why the Blackhawks won three out of six <laughs> Julie years Burns. in a row. <laughs> Julie Burns is the biggest reason. I just helped. So I just thank him <laughs> profusely for that, and Julie Burns by extension. This is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. For access to this and other podcasts, come over to ReachMD.com, and we'll see you there. Thanks again, James.